Welcome to the study of the book of Revelation, taught by Michael Fitzgerald, senior pastor of Clifford Baptist Church. These lessons come from a Wednesday night study of the book, so the format is more of a classroom setting. Included in this Revelation series are written study notes, which can be accessed with each lesson in the series. We are moving along in a year-long study through the book of the Revelation. If you remember... This is the only book of the Bible that promises us that we will be blessed simply because we study it and we read it. Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that heareth the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. And I believe that indeed we are going into the days where the time is more and more at hand. And so these words of prophecy certainly apply to us this day. The disciple John had preached the Lord Jesus Christ in the Roman Empire. Uh, If you remember, he was the longest surviving of the disciples. And because of his faith, he was arrested and sentenced to the prison island of Patmos, the Alcatraz of its day. It sat in the Aegean Sea. And one Sunday... God lifted John up and he saw an awesome vision of the reigning, ruling, judging Lord Jesus Christ. And it was such an overwhelming sight that John falls at Jesus' feet in fear. uh, And he falls as if he were dead because of the reverence and because of the fear. And yet, if you remember that very familiar touch, Jesus lays his hand on John and tells him to fear not. He gives him a writing assignment that has three phases to it. The first chapter of the book of the Revelation is the first phase in that he says, write your vision of the risen Lord Jesus. The second phase of the letter and the writing assignment is to write a personal letter to each of the seven churches in Asia Minor. And we find the second phase of the letter in chapters 2 and 3. The third phase of the letter that Jesus assigns to John is to write the words of the prophecy about our future. And the assignment says, write the words of the prophecy to the people of God. So this book is really for us as we understand God's future uh, and God's prophecy for the world. And that is in chapters 4 through 22. Now at this point, we are in the second phase of the assignment and that we are studying the seven letters to the churches, and we tonight are on letter number five. Uh, we're going to study the letter to the church in the city of Sardis. Uh, before we get to the letter itself, let me tell you a little bit about the city. The city itself of Sardis sat 1,500 feet above sea level. It was greatly, according to your sheet, it was greatly fortified. It was a protected city. And around 1200 B.C., it became the capital of the Lydian Empire. It was a very important city. It was a city of trade, a city of commerce, a city where many people would come and go. Its primary industry was harvesting wool and dyeing it different colors and making clothing from the wool. Sardis boasted one famous resident. And his name was Aesop, A-E-S-O-P. Remember Aesop's fables? Aesop lived in the city of Sardis, but he lived there around 500 B.C. So 
uh, a good many years before this letter was written, uh, Aesop lived in the city of Sardis. It was a very prosperous city. Even after it was conquered by the Arabs in 716 A.D., it remained a very prosperous, money-making city. But the city was invaded and destroyed in 1403 A.D., and today that city still does exist, but it is a very small village in Turkey, and the village is called Sart, S-A-R-T, but it sits on the site of the very prosperous city of Sardis. Now, the church in Sardis in John's day was sadly characterized by Jesus as the dead church. Isn't that a sad characterization for any church? Uh, We're going to read the letter tonight. We're going to look at the problems that Sardis had. Again, I remind you, I believe that the problems and the praises that we see in these seven letters apply directly to the church Uh, a couple of millennia later. So they certainly do apply to us, and we can learn from them, grow from them. So turn with me to chapter 3 of Revelation, and the letter to Sardis is in verses 1 through 6. Hear these words of Jesus addressed to the church at Sardis. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches." May God add his blessing to the reading of this very precious portion of his word. We begin with the last verse. Those of us who hear these words, we are to grow from them, we are to heed them, and we are to listen to the warnings that the Lord gives to a church of yesteryear and apply how he wants that church to minister to our own ministry. Now, Jesus addresses this letter to the angel, to the messenger, even, we might say, to the pastor of the church in Sardis. He identifies the letter as coming from him who has the seven spirits of God and also the seven stars. Now, let's think about the seven spirits of God. That does not mean that that church or we are polytheists. We do not worship a multitude of gods. Doesn't mean that we're looking at seven gods here, but rather remember that numbers are very important in the biblical word, and they're important in the usage in the language of that day. Seven is a perfect number. Seven is the number of completeness. God is complete. So the seven spirits of God indicates that our one God is perfectly holy, perfectly powerful, Perfectly all-knowing, perfectly loving, and we can continue the list. Perfectly righteous, he knows all. 
So we see God's holiness certainly at the burning bush. We see his power in the story of creation. We see his knowledge of everything we are and everything we have in our mind and in our hearts in Psalm 139. Lo, O Lord, even before a word arrive on my tongue, thou knowest it altogether. Thou dost beset me behind and before and layest thy hand upon me. The Lord knows everything about us. We see his love expressed on the cross and the empty tomb, and his love continues to be expressed to this world and that any who will come to him will indeed be saved and forgiven and promised heaven. So our God is one, and he is perfect in every way. Our God has chosen to show us his oneness through God the Father, who is the Creator, God the Son, who is the Savior, and God the Spirit, who lives in us. But we worship one God. Now, the seven stars that Jesus mentioned here, as we've discussed before, are the seven messengers or the seven leaders of these churches. And Jesus holds and guides the leaders of his church. Praise God that he is the one who holds and guides the leaders of the church. What a blessing. If he did not guide the leaders, it's no telling how the church would fall into disarray. If we tried to lead the church on our own wisdom, uh, on our own smarts, uh, the church wouldn't last very long. Praise God that he holds the leaders, that he holds the messengers of the church. We would just fumble and stumble around if it was based only on our human wisdom and knowledge. But our reaction to his leading as leaders of the church, but also as the church gathered, the church ministering, all of us need to fall before the Lord from leaders on through the ranks of the church, teaching our children that we are to fall before him in submission uh, and in service and in humility before his will. When the church's leaders begin to say, let's follow our own plan for the church, we're going to quickly fall into trouble. So we submit in prayer, we submit in study, we submit in worship, In everything, we're saying, Lord, give us your direction in how we are to minister and reach out and worship and praise you as your church. Sardis, however, had gone astray. And according to this letter, they were at the very point of death, of dying, of closing their doors. Now, their doors were not closed. It still was a functioning church, but they were right on the threshold of death, of closing. Now, that word burns in our hearts when it is applied to the church, for any church surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ is going to receive his blessing and is going to move out in ministry. If a church is dead, it's because they have fallen out of love. They don't have that first love as we studied in the church at Ephesus of following the Savior, Jesus. Uh, Let me give you a picture of the church at Sardis as I see it by way of an earthly example. We've lived where we live now Uh, over 16 years, but when we were clearing the land for our house to be built 17 years ago, uh, there was a sizable dogwood tree. George Jones is the one who cleared the land for our house to be built, and he said, Mike, I want you to mark all the trees that you want to keep. In fact, I realized that I marked too many because I raked too many leaves. But at any rate, I marked all these oak trees and all the trees that I wanted to keep when George was going to clear the land for our house to be built. And I marked off a very sizable dogwood tree that was in the woods. Uh, When George brought his equipment in and was taking out trees and smoothing out the land and, and doing all the things that needed to be done for the house to be built, 
he disturbed the root system of that tree. Now, the one thing that I've learned about a dogwood tree is that the root system is very close to the top of the ground. Uh, that being the case, it's, it's easy with a machine to disturb the root system, and that's exactly what George did. Uh, and as time went on, that tree began to die. And in fact, in its latter days, the tree itself was standing in my yard. I didn't have the heart to cut it down yet because there was one branch right at the top that still bloomed, still had leaves. The rest of the tree was as dead as it could be, but there was one living branch at the top side of that tree, and I didn't have the heart to cut that thing down until that last branch gave up the ghost and died. But what we're seeing at the church at Sardis is this, as we go through this letter. The church overall was right at the verge of or had died. But there was one living branch in that church. And that's what was sparing its life before the Lord Jesus Christ. It was surrounded by dead branches, but there was one branch there. Uh, in verse 4, it seems that there's a small group of saved people who are doing their best to walk with the Lord Jesus as witnesses and as ministers and as servants. They're doing their level best to keep this church alive and moving and functioning. And even though they're surrounded by a lot of dead branches, the Lord identifies this one living branch of this, these few people who are working in the church. Look at verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 4. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. But here's the problem. This little group is surrounded by a big group. This little group of ministers, little group of workers, little group of testifiers to the word are surrounded by those who are sleepy and apathetic and non-working and nonchalant and unconcerned members of the church, members who are not doing their part and therefore are allowing that church to die in ministry. Now, despite this little group's efforts, the church had crossed over this line of death, just, just as that dogwood tree had crossed over that line. Sir, the, 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 the true servants were outnumbered by the apathetic non-servants, and the church was on its way. They couldn't find teachers who cared. They couldn't find nursery workers. They couldn't find men who would serve as deacons. Uh, the offerings were low. The attitude filled the church of, let somebody else do my job. You know, that's one of the most terrible sins within the church body. It's when church members get to the point of saying, I've done my part, or I've gotten to the age, or whatever it might be. Let somebody else take my place. I'm going to sit down here now and do nothing. Let somebody else take my place. I don't see the word retirement in the Word of God. Now, it's true that perhaps as we age or as we move along in our ministry with the Lord, He's going to change our assignment. But I don't believe we ever retire from doing the work of the Lord. Do I hear an amen to that? We don't retire from that. You know, I think about a little Addie Martin, a good buddy to Derek and me and many here. Uh, and right now, she is physically not able to get to church, and it just breaks her heart. 
But every time I visit her, she says, at 5.30 in the morning, I am sitting in Bible study, and I am lifting up my pastors and lifting up my church in prayer. She has not retired. She may be in her 80s, and she might be uh, physically afflicted in ways, but she has not retired. And that should be the same spirit that fills the entirety of the church. Lord, no matter my circumstance, I'm going to serve you. However the circumstance might demand me to serve you, I'm going to do that, but I'm not going to retire. I'm not going to sit down and do nothing, but rather I'm going to give my life, my service to you. So that attitude of let somebody else do it is one of the things that was killing the church in Sardis. But here's Jesus' word to, the, uh, to this church. In verses 2 and 3, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If, therefore, thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Jesus is saying, church at Sardis. Parts of you are dead, parts of you are dying, and I command you to wake up, and I command you to repent of this sin of non-service, this sin of laziness, this sin of apathy, and I want you, church, to get back to work. I want to restore you in the kingdom's work. So get on with your God-anointed ministry, and I will resurrect you back to life. It is true that this church was at the point of death, it was dying, parts of it were dead, but our Jesus is a God of resurrection, amen? He can bring that church back to where it needs to be. If God can raise his only son from the dead, he can resurrect a dead church. Bear that in mind. That's one of the most important statements. It's not on your sheet, but you might want to write it down. If God can resurrect his son, he can resurrect a dead church. Now, I'm not a great historian of Clifford Baptist Church's past, but I can tell you this. There was an era of Clifford Baptist Church that it came close to death. Uh, and the story has swirled around for 30 years, as I've heard it, uh, that there was a little living branch here. Uh, it was composed of Elizabeth Garland's mother, Jake Garland's grandmother, uh, it was composed of Kenneth Campbell's parents. Uh, and while the entirety of the church seemed to be folding up, there was that little branch that knew this church was to remain open. Its doors were not to be closed. And that little branch held on, and you can see the Lord Jesus Christ resurrected a church brought it back into life and into living ministry, into doing what the Lord would have us to do. So the Lord has resurrected this very church over the years, a church that was within two or three people of being closed. But look now. Now, that doesn't mean we get lazy. Look at us now. Look how good we are. I don't, I'm not implying that in the least. But I am saying we need to continue to be busy about the work of Jesus Christ so we never return to that again. We need to be serious about that work. Every one of us, every one of us uh, from this group to the entirety of the church needs to lay aside any thought of let somebody else take my place. Let somebody else do the work. Let somebody else pick up the prayers. But we want to work together so that this church remains in the will uh, and in the ministry that the Lord sets before us. 
Now, we're thankful for our past and knowing that the Lord does resurrect the church. But our task remains that we are to stay awake and alert and sensitive. Always, every church, not just this church, but every church needs to be aware of what happened at Sardis. And every church needs to be mindful that we are to be workers in the kingdom of God. Uh, We are to be aware that that syndrome of getting sleepy and lazy, falling into the, the, the thoughts of let somebody else do it, I'm at the point of retirement. No, rather we don't slow down, we continue to gear up for the Lord to use us in a greater way. Look at verse 5. <clears throat> Revelation 3, 5 says, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. I love that verse. It is a verse that is a hard, wonderful statement about the security of the believer. God says, once your name is inscribed into his great book of life, once you are saved by Jesus Christ, he will never blot your name or my name out of his book. I believe that when you are a true child of God, uh, you cannot lose your salvation. Now, I believe that for The biblical reason that we see stated here, uh, I believe it just biologically, I believe it in the proof that the Lord Jesus gave Gwen and me a son and a daughter. And there is nothing that I will ever do from this day through all eternity to divorce myself from my children. There's no way biologically and no way spiritually that I would ever give my children away. Once you are born into the kingdom of God, once your name is written in the book of life, he will not blot it out. That is not a statement about how good we are, but it is a statement that God keeps his promises, that God is a God of grace through his son Jesus. Uh, So we're thankful for the character of God. Uh, You remember that uh, Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it or complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself in John chapter 10, verses 27, 28, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand." The security of the believer is at the bedrock of the Word of God. When we're truly saved, when your name is truly written in the book of life, it is an eternal act that is given by the promise of a powerful God. He will never turn his back on that promise. The sister verse in Revelation to this verse that we're just reading is Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. That's the sister verse about the book of life in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 15. You know, some years ago, I would say probably I'd been here maybe uh, around 10 years, something like that, I had my family's health insurance on a group policy with uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield, and there were some ministers that had made up this group policy. There was an insurance agent in Waynesboro, and basically he made a group out of a group of ministers. Uh, But one day... 
uh, in my group policy, I got a letter that was just a bolt out of the blue that said, all the group of ministers who shared this policy with you are now moved away. You're the only one who remains on your field, and so your policy is now dead. And I want you to know that's that cold sweat that breaks out on the back of your neck. You know, one, one, uh, one uh, bad appendix could just wipe us on out here financially. But the child of God will never get that letter. The child of God will never hear you've been blotted out. You've lost your policy. You've lost your place. Your name is erased from the book. Now, I do want to add one qualifier here. I want you to listen closely. There are many people, and this is a biblical word as well, there are many people who believe their name is in the book. And unless something changes in their life, when they stand before the Lord, he's going to say, I never knew you. Your name was never written in my book. You, you made a serious mistake in that you thought sitting in a church pew put your name in my book. It didn't. You thought being a moral man or woman put your name in my book. It didn't. You thought being a good neighbor put your name in my book. It didn't. You thought because you were a good parent, your name got in my book. It didn't. The only way to have your name written in the Lamb's book of life is to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life and fall in submission to him in repentance and thanksgiving and service. You're falling under his grace. You're covered by his blood that he shed for you and me. And through that red blood, we become white as snow. Good actions, morality, all of those things are wonderful things, but they will not write your name in the book of life. So, tonight, perhaps there is someone here who says, Lord, I need my name written in the book. If so, tonight, talk to Pastor Clyde, talk to me. We will open God's Word and show you exactly making sure that your name is written in that Lamb's book of life. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as I close this study tonight, we remember that we are not ever to retire from the work of the Lord. Now, our work might change with our circumstances, but we never retire. We never lay it down. We never say, I quit. Let somebody else take my place. If there is breath in your body, my body, some way we're supposed to be servants of the Lord, giving our life to Him. You know, this can be an even more exciting place as every one of us entrusts ourselves to the Lord. Say, Lord, use my talent. Use my life. Use my energy so that I can be your servant. We have a challenge and a command from the Lord Jesus Christ to continue to be the people of God, but he expects us to grow. You know, uh, Dwayne and Lisa Campbell brought their little boy, Michael Christian, here tonight, and they're expecting him a year from now to be quite different than that little brand-new newborn in their arms. A year from now, we should be different and that we see new life in these pews. It's our assignment. It is our command to take the good news out and bring the lost in. And we need to receive that assignment and act on it every day. 
so that our church is never, ever characterized as a Sardis.